welcome to podcast episode nine, I think, because I think last episode was eight, if Jake was correct in his number guessing in the podcast. Uh, we're going to continue the topic from last week where we talked about competitive games. We left off on the topic of the financial requirements for each uh, and the differences between the two. Uh, and I believe that was Mazio's point of topic that he wanted to bring up and talk about. So let's just get right into it. Uh, Mazio, tell us about this financial requirement idea you had. All right. So not to not to like make it weird, but how much do you think an elf should cost? $25. Okay, well... I'm not going to discuss wait, slavery. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. Uh, what's, no, like, what's, it's a plastic it, what's the intended figure? purpose? It's a plastic figure, right? Uh, we're like on, a toy soldier. But, like, how much should an elf cost? How much should a stormtrooper cost? Um, I have no reference in these games, but I have something that fits in with this discussion about a game that just released, but I'll let you finish your little thing first. Um, I'm going to give you the the basic answer. Something proportional to its value in the game. I mean, like, wow. that's definitely not true, but, like... I know. I mean, it probably should be, but it's not. I mean, I think that, like, one of the major things that we didn't really get to discuss last time is that a lot of tabletop games... We're not going to talk about Magic, because Magic is its own thing. I mean, Magic just released a limited... a, a card that's super limited for format that came out at $200. Like, $200 for a piece of cardboard, and I find that outrageous. Wait, which one was that? What? Which one was that? Cooled Lotus came out. It's Commander only. It's in Commander Legends, and it's, like, $200 online. It's, like, 188 bucks or something like that. I don't even think it's that great, but whatever. Another, another time. I think another that time. it's a great card if it's in, like, the first opening hand of the first, like, three, four cards you draw. Yeah, but if you play Commander with, like, multiple people, which is how it's supposed to be played with, if you're constantly getting your commander out really fast, they're just all gonna gank you. Like, Oh no, I I would never give somebody $200 for a piece of yeah, cardboard. That That's anyway, ridiculous. But right. I did pay Games Workshop 70-ish dollars for one elf riding a moose. That seems like a good One trade. elf. Yeah, I mean, like, granted, it's Thranduil, king of, you know, Mirkwood elves, but it was, you know, he's a $70 elf riding a moose. Um, And I really thought almost nothing of it. In fact, my immediate thought was, do I also want a dwarf riding a pig for, like, another, like, 60 or 70 bucks without even, like, considering the amount of money that that actually is, right? And when you buy, you know, figures generally cost around between, like, 3 and $5 per figure for, like, line infantry across most games. You start to kind of hit this point where you're like, well, how much, how much is reasonable for a toy soldier in a market that's so artificially created, right? Like, you end up in this, like, philosophical quandary of, like, well, if I build it and I paint it, I don't paint anything. I don't know why I even bother considering that. 17 years into a hobby, but whatever. Let's say I do eventually buy the airbrush I've been lying to my friends about for the last six months. Thanks, COVID. Um, 
what what should a toy soldier cost? What should a piece of cardboard card cost? And how much is that monetary value the thing that makes the illusion of the game real, right? Like, on a certain fundamental level, the the actual cost of tabletopping in terms of money and then secondarily in terms of time immediately becomes a marker of commitment to the game, right? Like, you go into somebody's house or they come into a shop and they pull out a case and you're like, oh, that is a lot of infinity or that is a lot of space marines for 40k or a lot of, you know... You look at um one of the factions I play in Age of Sigmar, the Gloom Spike Gits, and like, oh, how many night goblins do you own? Oh. That seems like a reasonable amount in the mid two hundreds. Right? It like whatever it is, I should look it up. Uh I think it's like three bucks a goblin or something like that. So I have a question. Uh-huh. Would you pay more for the equivalent of a Legion Corps unit in, say, Infinity? So this is like your average rank-and-file soldier. Would you pay more for it in Infinity, since I, I assume those models cost more? Not really, no. Okay, 40k. Would For- you Would you pay more for a Space Marine than you would a Stormtrooper? Like, if they dropped a Stormtrooper at Space Marine prices, and everything visually about it looks exactly the same and the way that it fits into the game roughly the same would you pay more for it or is something about the way that they're pegging the prices relative to their entire line is a game is one game more valuable than another and does a cap on which it can price stuff vary simply because of where it's marketed itself does that make sense? It makes total sense. Um, I'm actually like, I have a very complicated answer to this, and I don't know. <laughs> like, oh, does anybody actually want to talk about this? I do. Does internet even want to hear this like level of minutia? So like, there, there's two major things to, to start off in this conversation, right? Which is currently on Final Fan, on, uh, Fantasy Flight, sorry, on Fantasy Flight's own website, which I am, I'm actually staring at. Uh, as we speak, right? A box of clone troopers costs, uh, $35. Phase 2 clone troopers and our troopers. The newer models cost $35, right? And, like, let's make it easy on ourselves and call it 10 models. Like, so, like, $350 per clone trooper, right? Anakin Skywalker costs $15 for just Anakin Skywalker, but he comes with more what are called gubbins, like cards and tokens and stuff, right? And, well, nobody will ever question spending $15 on Anakin Skywalker, myself absolutely included in this, because, well, it's Anakin Skywalker, and he's basically 25% of your army, and he's awesome, and he does all this cool stuff, right? So $15 feels reasonable, and then you start to, like, do math in your head, and you're like, well, I need six boxes of Phase two clone troopers at $35 a box, or at least five boxes of them, right, to have them on hand. And right now you have to have three boxes of arc troopers to play the the old republic or the galactic republic, right? At thirty five dollars a box, and all of a sudden you're like, so eight times thirty five plus Anakin Skywalker, and that's still not done. And then you turn around, and the Magic the Gathering people are there going, like, ah, it's like less than one card in this pile of cardboard costs, right? 
and you start to look at this from a real world perspective of like, yeah, I can see how people um have like trouble comprehending certain aspects of gaming. Right? Where I go ahead. Listening to this, I almost equate it to the difference I've played mostly MMOs in my life, correct correction. Um I equate it to in MMOs there are things at a set price that you can buy with real money, be it cosmetics or what have you. Those are at a set price. You can't haggle, negotiate it, whatever. But if you take those items out of the regulated environment of that and put it in like an auction house, then the value of that is no longer $25, however you spent on the skin. It's now millions of in-game coin that fluctuates depending on if it's stylish at the time, if it's new, if it's old, if people can still get it or not. And I think it's the in-game economies that more strongly relate to what happens with Magic the Gathering or with, if there's like printing, like printing issues, I guess. You, know, you talked about how there was one time that they didn't make enough of a certain unit and then the price got jacked up because people bought a lot of them and then they were selling them higher because people wanted them, but there yeah, wasn't yeah, enough. Yeah, it's going on right now, like during the recording, like. A box of ARC Troopers that I just said was 35 but I think I saw it on eBay for like 75 or 90 today. Yeah, so there's two separate, com- not communities, I guess, markets t- to focus on, in my mind, from your statement, is that there's the regulated controlled from the developer, here's the set price, what we think it's worth. But then once the community gets a hold of it, the community assigns it a certain value based on how effective it is in play or how sought after it is in the community, which can be higher or lower than the value that the developers or the set cost that it, they set. And I think the part that's hard to comprehend is when you get into the community market. I think if I look at people and I say, oh, it's, I don't know, a hundred something dollars for like a box of a hundred cards of magic or whatever. Cause like the booster, but I don't know how many are in the booster box. I've only bought one booster 30, box. I think it's like 250 it or something. Right yeah. And I think that they're a little bit more understanding because someone else is setting the price. But when you look at them and you're like this one car, $200, they're like, Oh, why? And that's when they get confused as heck. But I mean, in that same vein, right? Like the exact parallel of like a $4 booster pack of Magic the Gathering has very little material in it, right? There's development cost to it, of course, but like there's very little material in it. And you have the same kind of functional problem looking at some of these war games where you're like, oh, but at the same time, there's this weird counter-argument where it, I don't want to say like, it's not like a, it's not like a point, I guess it's a point of pride. I don't know how to explain it. It's like, a, well, if you didn't want to spend $50 on a box of Space Marines, well, then I guess you just didn't really want to play the game that bad. Never mind the fact that, like, that statement's insane. Like, you didn't want to spend the price of a, of a, nearly the price of a AAA video game, right? Or a nice dinner out on some plastic Space Marines. I don't even know who you are anymore, okay? And I'm sitting here surrounded, literally, like, literally, like, the dining room of my house, my girlfriend looks at me, she's a very understanding person, 
looked at me and said, maybe not all the toy soldiers need to be in the dining room, right? Which is where we're currently, like, we're playing with streaming and we're playing on my on my brand new gaming table that finally came, which we talk about constantly. And I'm like, yeah, no, you're you're probably right. And at the same time, I'm like, you know, there there's this weird thing that happens, right? Because I remember in WoW, I bought, I used to, like, every once in a while, despite paying a subscription fee and everything else, every once in a while I'd go into, like, the cash-only section of um, Battle.net and be like, yeah, like, uh, you know, WoW's been good to me. Have $25 for a dragon that's not real. And it, it's funny that part of the suspension of disbelief that governs the gaming world is this moment where, okay, I'm going to spend an absurd sum of money on something that material-wise could never live up to what I'm purchasing it for, but this shared fiction elevates it. And if I refuse to pay this, then I'm not actually part of this world. So to put it in an example, I'm going to out a friend of mine. Um, I guess it's outing. I don't know. Um, I reconnected with a high school friend recently. My 20-year high school was this year. I, I like looked at the three people that I was like, I kind of miss talking to that person and reached out to one of them. I feel like that was like the right way to go about being 20 years out of high school in 2020. We started playing board games together on like Tabletopia and TTS and she buys like, she generally like, I show her a game. She's like, I'm buying it. I'm like, what? Why? And she's like, well, my husband and I play it because we do play like it's her and her husband, me and my girlfriend and we're, we're playing. Um, and we just played a game and I'm like, well, this one's a lot more expensive than we normally play them. And she's like, well, how much could it be? She's just like $40 games. She's like, $70. And I'm like, yeah, it's $70. It's expensive for, like, in the back of my head, I'm like, that's not that expensive for a board game. It's just that you're not really part of this world yet. You're still new. Am I making like any kind of rattly sense? Absolutely. I mean, I know I told you about this Mazier yesterday, but I have had a similar golf experience recently. And it kind of parallels with this a little bit because it's, it is such a competitive thing and it is kind of like very hoity toity about its equipment. But I, for anybody that knows how to play golf, am a terrible golfer. I'm awful. Um, but I enjoy it. So I keep going. I've got a driver that's way too short. So I go to Dick's and I'm like, yeah, how much could a driver be? I walk <laughs> in <laughs> and I walk in and I'm like, wow. That is $400 more than I thought it was going to be. And instead I bought a hat. Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you're still buying into that world, right? Like. Oh, absolutely. But, uh, there was a very, there was a very, like, distinct moment where I was talking to one of the salesmen and I was like, yeah, how much is this one? And they were like, 400 bucks. And I was like, yeah, how about that one instead? <laughs> and then very quickly, like, they, they came to realize they were like, ah, you're, you're new. You're not buying into this. Like the equipment that you know about, the equipment that you have is not the the competitive standard of like a real golfer. Let's direct you to the casual section. And honestly, that's where I belong relative to golf. It's not something that I take very seriously. It's something that I enjoy doing on a weekend, but not not to the level where I need to be spending four hundred dollars on a driver. But for people inside of that world, that makes complete sense. My roommate is very good at golf, relative myself at least but for him buying a 400 hundred dollar driver makes sense or for friends of ours that are significantly better than either of the two of us combined it makes absolute sense to go spend god probably like i don't know thousand dollars on a set of irons 
because they play constantly and they're really part of that community. But to anybody outside of that, like imagine if, because like the relative time investment that you would get from like a set of clubs like that is probably the same as like, I don't know, maybe getting like a couple factions in Star Wars Legion, right? If you were to get like one of the core sets and um, you built out like two factions, call it separatists and clones. Which you could totally do for $400, no problem. I have it in my cart right now. It's going to cost me $362 to basically fully kit out a Separatist army. And then I have some clones in there as well because the core set is with it. So call it maybe $500 for two of that. That seems absurd to people that don't play Legion. I know this because I've talked about it with them. But that seems completely reasonable. And relative to golf, that's pretty cheap. Because an entire set of clubs, which I would probably put at the equivalent, is way more than 500 bucks. Way, way more. But it's all relative to the ecosystem that you're in and how in it you are. That's kind of all I have. Does that make sense? I think that, like you guys were saying, I think it exists in every community bubble. And Mazzy, we talked about this in class, but not on the podcast, where you have different levels of commitment in video games and whether or not you're a minnow, a dolphin, or a whale. Right. Yeah, I mean, I prefer to I prefer the term corpse or shade, but yes. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. I'm not great at video games, okay. But thinking about it, to be competitive in the PC world, you still have, you have to pay for a high end PC. You got to pay for nice monitors to reduce input delay and screen tearing, and that's thousands of dollars to get into the competitive scene of video games. And then you have to buy the game itself. And then you have to spend probably money on the game getting what you want. I think it's just the difference for me is that everything that I buy into for the video game is a set price by the developer, usually from the competitive scene. Or I can craft it in game and I don't actually have to spend money, like real money on it. It's just time at that point, which we already talked about in the previous episode. Yeah. Secondary markets aside. Yeah, secondary markets aside. It's a hidden cost issue. Uh, no, I, that's not where I'm getting. I'm saying that my my issues is is that in the tabletop market, it is always the community market. If I wanted to go buy a single card of magic, the price of that card is determined by the community itself. It's not a set fixed price. It's mm-hmm. one day, it could be 10 cents, and then up. Somebody won a tournament with it and pulled out this cool move, and now all this sh- shit like went on the internet, and now that price went from ten cents to like fifty dollars. So in that situation, kind of the hardcores, like the insane golfers of the world, are dictating the cost of the casual entry. Yeah, and which I, is not good. Yeah, and I think that's the difference in my brain between tabletop games and video games. There are rare occurrences where, yeah, the in-game community will affect what weapons you can buy by money, but that's, again, as someone who's played MMOs, in-game currency is a completely different thing in my mind than spending actual money. No, I mean, I think that that makes sense, because all these things require time on top of the monetary issue. What's funny is that tabletop gaming is, is the same entry point across the board. Yeah. Unless the manufacturer messes up, which they do frequently, but like unless there's a mess up where there's a complete lack of something available at MSRP, 
it doesn't matter if you are the best player on earth or somebody who walked into a store, saw it, and decided they had to have it right now, that box still costs the same amount of money. Right. Whereas with video games, if you don't want to be a professional gamer, then don't buy a PC that's like $5,000. I'm going to be honest. If you don't want to be a professional gamer, get a console. I mean, that too. PC Master Race. But you can still still get PCs that aren't (laughs) insanely expensive and play casual games on it. And the barrier of entry financially is still lower. It is. There's also secondary uses. I I never recommend anybody gets a PC unless they have more than one reason for using it. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, but that's a side note. I mean, does it causes me psychological damage to not have one count as a reason? Yes. Does it, I have to Very edit this so. podcast later? <laughs> count as a reason. Also, yes. <laughs> but something that I wanted to bring out about a game that recently came out that's actually really popular, Genshin Impact, which, Mazzy, we've talked about a bit, which I really, I don't recommend people play. I am giving it more of a chance because it's still in beta, but it's basically, it's just a, fancy pretty gotcha game and that's about it and my book so my friends and i watched this video that one of the friends sent to chat that said this is the best chance to pull like a four or five star character which mazzy do you know what that means Uh, i'm assuming it has something to do with rarity and therefore goodness yeah so there's different star rankings for weapons characters artifacts etc Five-star rankings are rare drops to get, but they're typically better with either they have more passive abilities, or their passive abilities do more than the lower-star characters, or they just have better okay. base stats, etc. So one of them sent a video about how to get like a 500% rate to pull five stars, and apparently people in China went through and did the math on the what they called, I think, a pity value, where like if you keep pulling and you don't get a five-star... Gotcha games will give you like a pity modifier. <laughs> oh, now they will. Now they, they used will. To not. Yeah, that's yeah. And so they'll give you a pity modifier. And somebody did the math on how many rolls it would have to take before that pity modifier actually starts mattering. And the video went through and it said after 99 rolls, you're guaranteed a random five star. But after roll 75, it spikes up drastically. And there was like a graph and everything with it. And I was like, (laughs) and jokingly, I told them, I was like, don't worry, everybody. You just have to waste your money for 99 rolls and then you'll get a random five star you didn't want. (laughs) And then we started to think about it. And I was like, wait, honestly, let's let's go with the 70. You did 75 rolls because that's when it really spikes and you're you're bound to get like a five star after that point. So I said, how much money do you have to spend to hit the 75 rolls that then they're like, all right, whatever, you can have the five star. Because that's effectively what the rate is. His developer said, after you spend this much money, then sure, whatever, here, have one. And anything you spend less than that, they want you to keep trying to get more or they think it's undervalued for the five star you're getting. Right? Is this all making sense? It makes total sense. It also makes me want to throw up in my mouth. Right? So I I have not spent money on this game and nor do I ever intend to spend money on this game because... Gotcha games deserve their own special ring of hell. <laughs> and it's like a whole different type of gambling that I'm not into. But I asked my friends, how much money does it cost? And they started to do the math for it. And it turns out that using the 75 pull marker, not the 99 where you're guaranteed, but the 75, it would be $160. Oh. Which means this game's developers value the five-star characters at about $160 give or take. 
Because once you've spent that money, then they don't care if you get one or not. But if you spend less money, then they need to make it harder for you to get it because they think you're getting it undervalued than what it is. Yes? Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And so yep. after I sat there and I started thinking about it, I'm like, that makes me want to throw up. <laughs> like, I, I'm i looking at these five-star characters, which granted, beautiful character models, nice design, well-animated, all voice acted or whatever. But I'm sitting here like, $160. Like, I don't... This game, doesn't, this game doesn't even have a competitive scene yet. It's just you sitting there with your animated waifus, and the one that you really wanted was uh, revalued at $160. And even though I'm in the gaming community, I still can't comprehend the gotcha side of it, where they're putting $160 on these characters. I mean... $160 will get you a very pretty model. I want to emphasize that extremely. Yeah. Or a moderately useful magic card in certain formats. <laughs> yeah. There's there's this terrifying phenomenon in gaming when it comes to in-game purchases. That is, you don't have to really show the price tag for what you're buying. Right. That doesn't exist in physical media. Like, when I walk into Dick's Sporting Goods and I say, how much is the best driver? $400. How much is the best character in Genshin? I don't know. How about you roll this slot machine and find out, boy? Like, it's it's like, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's $160. Maybe it's $300. Maybe it's $80. We're not going to tell you. infinite dollars because you never get it. Yeah, like, it. it's a weird phenomenon. Yeah, video games have a gambling aspect to them that tabletop games seem to not have when it comes to purchasing characters, models, equipment, what have you. Assets. There, there are certain mechanisms that do it, like blind boxes for hero clicks, packs for any card game, but functionally, no. Right. Because the secondary markets absolve you of needing to be a part of that. Right. But it's not even gambling, because there's literally zero chance of you ever regaining your value. Like, at least if you put all your money on black in a casino, you've got, like, 49% odds that you're going to, you know, double your money. Right. There's a chance that you're going to get your cash back. Here... It's literally, you're burning your money. There's just a chance that you're going to get the inconvertible currency that you want. Right, but that may hold value to some players, and I feel like that's where they get them. I mean, if it didn't, that whole industry would cease to exist. Right. I it holds value for the players, but it's it's worth noting that like if it actually holds transferable value outside of the game, I'm pretty sure legally that can get them into significant trouble. Like That was a problem that CSGO had for a while. <laughs> <laughs> because you could, you could for a minute, I, there was ways you could like sell accounts and stuff and like gamble with skins. And I, I, I would have to refresh. So, you know, selling accounts don't quote is me on typically frowned upon in most games that I've played and like heavily restricted because it does start yeah. getting into, oh, now, now you're paying real life money and gambling and like bartering with it. And that we cannot have that. Yeah, that, I remember there being as like long a legal as what we give you is that. valueless. As long as you're giving us money and hurling it into the void, that's a okay. But if you get any it kind is. of return on this and it becomes an investment or theoretical investment, <gasps> no, we go to jail. Can't do that. Sorry. Not with Genshin Impact, because I haven't played enough to verify it. But if I think about it in this hypothetical situation, say you've spent a lot of money to get a higher class character in a video game. Whenever you have access to that higher class character, you are now able to maybe solo run a few dungeons, 
have access to more difficult content because it's now easier because you have a more powerful character. So wait, then, wait, wait. no, hear me so out. So no, 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 no. Let me finish. Let me finish. So then you go through and you farm legendary equipment and then you sell it and then you'll get a return, but it's just in-game currency. But, but then some games and people do this. <laughs> I may sound crazy, but people do this. And some games have a conversion between in-game currency to their quote-unquote real-life currency cash shop. So you could take the risk, spend money on a really good character, take that character, go and solo farm things. Now you don't need to party. Now you don't need to work up and spend time on that equipment. Get all this stuff, sell it in the in-game market, take that money and convert it back to the cash shop money, and then you've gotten some semblance of return. But you didn't account for the time you took to do it. And it's really hard to say, all right, how much money have I made off of this farming? Did it match up exactly to what I paid for this character? Because like Jake was saying earlier, there's no definite price tag on this character. So unless you go through and you hard data mine like the people in China did for Genshin Impact, you won't actually know what your character is valued at or what the developers think your character is valued at. So we can't really do the math of did you get a good return on this or not. At least tabletop games have secondary markets and the objects retain some value of some kind. There is one instance of this happening in video games, and I actually did it. PUBG, for a short minute. When PUBG came out, so you've got this Steam secondary market, and I assume both of you are familiar, but for anybody listening, that might not be. On Steam, if you, on certain games, CSGO most prominently, when you get an in-game skin, you can sell it on a secondary market in the Steam app, and that can convert to Steam Wallet currency. Steam Wallet currency can be spent on other video games. So it's not entirely cash oh, yeah. back in your pocket, but it's pretty much cash back in your pocket if you're going to spend it on games anyway. It's store credit, Jake. Yeah, 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 it's store credit. But, so for a minute, when PUBG dropped, if you played, you would get BP currency just from playing the game. And you would get a pretty significant amount, like back when it was in Alpha. And you could open crates with that BP currency, and they would drop these horrendously ugly yellow tracksuit pants. We found out you could actually resell those for a pretty significant amount of money. I think they peaked at like $20 per set of pants. So we farmed PUBG, me and my friends, for months. And honestly, at a point, for a very short minute of time, it was worth it to put money into the crates based on the drop rates. Like, I came out kind of even but it was it was almost worth it where putting your money in you could literally cash it out to steam wallet value and like turn potentially at least a somewhat okay problem but i ended up making all of my money back on my PUBG purchase simply from those crates like that was the only video game i've ever played in my life where i profited off of playing it and outside of that and honestly legally that's probably a little dubious <laughs> the fact that Maybe. you know you could pretty much convert it back into currency. Like, not that, like you say, it is store credit, but Steam wallet currency is, it spends pretty well. It does. It spends on stuff that I would otherwise have to spend cash on. It's, like, less transferable, but still. But to bring it back on roughly on topic for this podcast, the things we're talking about don't have a direct competitive relationship to it outside of the just, let me flex with this cool gear I have. No, I mean, I I don't agree with that. I think that they literally are 
proof of commitment to the world in a indirect sense. But I don't think that's competitive. Not in a video game mindset, that's not competitive. Getting skins in PUBG isn't a competitive aspect of the game. Champions in League are. Yeah. Champions in League are, Gold Guns and Overwatch are. I mean, I, I never but, played PUBG. But Gold Guns and Overwatch, you can't spend real life money on. Yeah, but I mean, like, there are corollaries where this action does have in-game status associated with it in the same way that, in the same way that owning a magic card has a status attached to it. But owning a magic card has an in-game effect attached to it. I get the champions in League because literally you have an entire character with a different ability set. For example, as of recording this, Seraphine came out shortly before the podcast and, um, she's broken as hell. She's absolutely like, a ridiculous god tier support. Um, they're gonna patch her, and they're gonna probably, you know, nerf her quite a bit. But if you had the money to shell out or the blue essence, you could play a kind of a broken champion as long as she's not banned in your games for a little while. And Wait, I did, and she's are fantastic. Are you saying that you've never gone into a game of any stripe and been like, oh, they have that skin? That's a blah 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 skin. It costs this much to get, whether it's in-game currency or real currency, or requires that much time to get. Not really. You've never seen that as a yes. status symbol. I, no, but, I, so, I, but I don't see it as a competitive symbol. I, sure, it's a status, but I don't. That doesn't equate no, to I'm competition that, in my brain. I'm saying that it is a competition innately. So, like a psychological advantage from like skin intimidation, or yeah, raw value of having that and being able to generate a reaction with it is in and of itself a competition among players. Whether it affects your SR is a different story. I think that then depends on the players and their mindset. I equate it to the people who like hike up their truck suspension to high hell and put giant tires on it and like modify their car to the insane amounts just to be like, look at me. Look how much money I've spent on my car. Isn't my truck great? Vroom, vroom, and all that shit, right? But it takes a certain type of mindset for that to affect and like a very tiny bubble, I think, within the community. Because most players that I've played with in like, hundred people guilds and my gaming group are just like oh that's a neat skin but like our brain isn't like wow look at that person it's just like oh that's nice i think that's your data set i think if it was a very small percentage they wouldn't go through the effort to do all this no i think it's just my character looks cool i want the character to reflect me more most of the time from what i've learned in class and from what i've heard people talk about in the industry is that most of the time they do skins because they want the player to have a customization that more connects them to that character. They are, they're trying to reflect themselves on the character and not so much a biggest black competition. Uh, I mean, I'm going to disagree with it anyway, so we can just leave it there. I'm somewhere in the middle on this. Because, you know, when somebody rolls up into a league game with Soul Steer of the Bane, extremely rare skin. Although, I guess less so now. But still. Whatever the insane rare skin is of the moment, or like a Dragon Lore op or something like that, that I know is several thousand dollars, or just tons and tons of time. It's definitely like, oh shit, that person's uh, that person's invested. It's kind of like, you know, showing up with a $500 paying driver, or rolling into a Legion match with a full painted army, brand new, off, hot off the presses, ARC Troopers, five boxes. There, there is an intimidation factor. Even if you were running the exact same thing, the exact same army, but yours just wasn't painted, or they had like special custom bases and all this crazy stuff, there definitely is an intimidation factor that happens, or at least some sort of psychological pressure. But it's not, 
it's not an in-game effect. It might manifest in the game, but it's not designed in. There are only, I think, a few rare instances where there is actually a designed in, you can pay money to have a better character. You can pay money to have a different ability. Which then becomes pay to win. Kinda. I mean, there's there's definitely a gray area when it comes to League, because new champions, a lot of the times, are objectively better. I mean, granted, that is a hot take right there for some people, but, you know, last couple champs that they've put out, they've been pretty pretty solid. Um, and it, I don't think it's necessarily a coincidence that when a new champion drops, they are god tier for a short period of time, and then usually patched and nerfed. It's, you know, people get a short period of time where they can pay some money to play the good character. And if you've got either the blue essence or the cash in your wallet to pony up, you can get it. You can get your benefit. I don't know. I don't know if I would equate those two things, though. Skin intimidation and legitimate in-game bonuses. I don't even think I mean it as intimidation. I mean, like, collecting skins is a competition. Like, I mean, there's definitely moments where you can intimidate with it, but, like, there are lots of people for whom collecting that stuff is the competition of the game. There's completionists that view stuff like that as a goal they have in right. mind, but they're not competing with anybody but themselves. It's still a competition amongst yourself. I would just mm. label it as, here's my goal. We're going to have to agree to disagree because we're not going to come to a consensus on this. Fair enough. Moving on from the financial aspect of it. I, last podcast, wanted to bring up Among Us in that it's hard for me to classify as either a video game or more of a tabletop game that was given a digital aspect. Because if you break down Among Us, all the competition that happens in Among Us is between the players, just like it would at the table, where it's players arguing with one another or debating. It's completely outside of like the built-in game mechanics. And I think that's something interesting that we could talk about and or discuss. I mean, how is that different than PvP in any other sense? PvP, you're using built-in skills provided to you. The game has said, here are the rules you will play by. Here are the moves that you have access to with this character. You are confined to those moves. Isn't that just voting, though? No. How I say it is that you have a chance to lie, to manipulate, to scheme, to tag team, but those aren't strictly outlined in the rules of the game. Those are skills that the player has brought forth or created themselves as a person-to-person interaction. It's not the game saying, you must lie and pay five points to lie. But is that much different than, like, Counter-Strike leveraging people's, like, reaction time? Or hand-eye coordination? Because it's still playing off of an innate physical ability that they have. Called, you know, mental ability, physical ability, regardless. But, like, your ability to persuade and your ability to lie... I don't see that as much different from your ability to hit a sick flick with your op or dome somebody with an AK. I think my point didn't come across is that that's all the, this game has is your physical ability to do something or your mental capacity to do something. And that's the core and meat of the gameplay. Whereas with mm. other competitive games, the game has provided you a set of skills, a tool belt that you can use. Whereas in Among Us, it's really just you only get voting. Good luck. 
And then the rest of it is all skills mm. that you have to pull on and create yourself to sway the town or the crew to vote for or against you. I mean, part of that is definitely that this is a one-to-one with games like Avalon Resistance or Werewolf. I was going to say, it seems like there's just, like, less translation. Like, less uh, between you, the player, and your personal ability and your actual in-game actions. Where, like, League of Legends, for example, has the filter of your champion. Like, you've got your personal ability, your personal reaction and intelligence and, you know, game knowledge and stuff like that. And then all of that is filtered into the actions that you can perform with this champion and then out into the game. Whereas Among Us, you've got all of those things and it's just straight through the microphone. There's less of a a translation between those two things, which is probably good. You know, a good sign that they designed like a well, well well-architected social game. It seems like it's kind of the same thing. Even with Overwatch, I'm less familiar, but it seems that's probably a little closer even. Uh, Maybe not. I don't know. I'm less familiar with that one, so you guys will have to like correct me on that. But you're just—it's just an extension or another sort of translation between your abilities and the in-game consequences. Like I'm having a difficult time seeing the distinction. I think that using Overwatch because you brought it up, no matter how good Mazio is at Bastion, if the other team comp doesn't bode well for a Bastion. It doesn't matter how good his personal skills are. He's limited by what Bastion can do. So he's screwed. Whereas Among Us, you don't have that limitation of having, here's your set rules and regulations because that's a character you chose. Does that help? Maybe. Well, I I see what you're saying. But, I mean, you you are limited in a sense. You're limited by the actions you can take during the, the muted periods of the game. And Mazio, in this case, is limited by the actions that a Bastion could take in the game. He could hit 100% of his shots. He could land the best abilities that he possibly could. Um, if the other team just has like a better composition and overall a better skill, then they take better actions and they'll win the game. Um, in Among Us, you could be the best at manipulating, but if you don't actually put pen to paper and or you know fingers to screen, and start making people die, you probably will eventually lose. Yeah, you'll lose from them doing tasks. Yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of interested to see... Mazio, how do you how do you take this one? Because you've been quiet on this. I'm trying to parse it out in my head. The, the construct is essentially player skill versus uh, game filtering, right? Yeah. I can see Amanda's point with it. I'm also trying to think back to the times where, like, what am I regarding as player skill? The times when I was an imposter and they were proposing somebody who I knew wasn't an imposter and my only job was to stay quiet and then vote for that person at the end of the discussion. Right? Or or am I equating that to the ability to lie? Or is that happenstance, like dice or RNG? So maybe the issue is, is that I've watched hundreds of hours of top people play Among Us, and I've watched Corpse Husband is a good one to watch. One, because he has a great voice. But he went on a spree of winning every game as imposter just because he could manipulate people who, (laughs) 
literally finds him standing on the body, he finds a way to turn the tables on them and survive continuously. Like he had a a very long spree of just always winning as imposter because nobody could outsmart him in his arguments or in his deception that he put forth. And I think my brain is going for more times like that and less of the times where I've played with people around me and the people around me are just like, I don't know, it's them. And everyone's like, sure, I guess. But is that different than a Hanzo doming somebody or a Hanzo just shooting someone in the foot? Like a, a shitty Hanzo that just, you know, body shots the Rhine or a really good Hanzo that can pick off an entire team. I think my brain considers that separate different because Overwatch then goes through and patches those and adjusts those and balances it and forces a regulation to happen so that that stops happening. Like, I don't think Hanzo can shoot people in the foot anymore and do headshot damage. No, they <laughs> they, changed they changed it. it. But you can still you can still basic attack with Hanzo. I, I, I'm be, I am sorry, I'm butchering probably the terminology for Overwatch. But you can still one-tap people, no, correct? No, his bow has a longer charge on it now, so if you just tap, his arrow just, like, plunks to the ground. Oh, sorry, when I when I say tap, I mean shot. Like, when you can still shoot people one time in the head and kill them. As a headshot, yeah. Yes. So, Hanzo, in that sense, is kind of, like, the the least filter. Not, maybe not least, because you've got Widow and a couple other champions. Yeah, I would say Widow and him, maybe. Yeah, he's, like, the the least dense filter between the player skill and direct consequence in the game. And Among Us is probably is way thinner than that, because really it is just that person's intelligence and their manipulation ability. But I, I think it's it's kind of the same thing. In a weird way, actually, Bastion is kind of the least filter. Right? So. Because as Bastion, you position yourself, which is something you can do in Among Us, right? Then you hold <laughs> down left click. And I'm a Bastion main, so I'm allowed to say this. You hold down left click, and then RNG takes over, right? Like, the spread is enormous. It's basically a cone of cold level, like, just down the battlefield we go. And who and where you hit is really not any result of your own. But that's, an, that's I think, the opposite. That's the thickest filter. Because it is entirely out of your player skill hands, whether or not your shots are hitting. But if you that's have insane. the best Hanzo in the world, you can... You know, probably one. I don't know how, how many people are in Overwatch team. I feel like I've been saying six. five. Is five right? Six. 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 We it's haven't six. played Overwatch in a while. You could, it's it's six. Okay, it's six. I've been saying five because elite. <laughs> also, Sorry. you can't take three ar- more than three arc troopers in an army. Three is the max. I don't want the internet to think we're <laughs> well. They can think I'm an idiot. It's true. But did you buy five boxes of arc troopers? Because I will buy two of them off. <laughs> no, I I bought new legion stuff in a long time. Are they they're special forces? Like the yeah, oh, okay. But the Hanzo in that case, the best Hanzo in the world could one v six on the point and hit six headshots. Whereas the Bastion is kind of consistent depending on who's playing it, because after you've made that one decision to pick the optimal point to set up, the game takes over. The filter is doing all the work. Also, Bastion can't headshot. Yeah, not, not anymore. anymore. Those were the glory days. <laughs> Those are the glory days. But even so, pray you're not right. People just randomly died. Why? I had shot it as a Bastion. But I want to clarify, you can yeah. aim as Bastion, but 
but there's a min- like there's a limit to the amount of damage you can do. There's no body shots and headshots, so it's just a flat rate of damage. It's also like aiming with a rocket launcher. It is. In like other games well, like no, his that spread, general area. His spread tightens the longer you shoot, but at that point you hope people are smart enough to move out of the way. Most of the time they're not. But like <laughs> Well, in bronze trash level, yeah. it's not true. But. And it's still a spread. It's not a point. I think my my point is that Hanzo is shooting at a single pixel, essentially. Not not actually. I think Hitbox is much bigger than that. But you get Han- what I mean. Hanzo, you, get more, you are rewarded for having higher player skill with more damage if you play Hanzo and Widow. Bastion... You aren't rewarded with jack shit with higher player skill because your damage maintains the same. Yeah. But I think I think in the middle of the conversation is this weird this weird thing where the question that's being asked is are we counting essentially chat in other games as a skill in Among Us? I think right? so. Which is not an unfair thing to say about Among Us since that is a cornerstone of the game. Yeah, the meat of the gameplay isn't the ta- the meaningless tasks you go around doing on the sh- on the ship. It's those brief moments where you're talking with the other members of the crew and you're chatting with them, trying to figure out who killed Bob in the corner. <laughs> I mean, they're not meaningless if you've ever been one task away from winning and that person leaves the game. You know. Well, then the task auto completes and you win. Right, but then that <laughs> but person yeah. stood there for seven minutes. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going for a task victory, yeah. I think task victories are incidental, which is part of what I like about Among Us, but uh, if you can... Uh, Alright, complicated question. Philosophical, complicated question. Uh-huh. If you can receive the same reward, right? Victory, in this case, as an imposter, by A, being a master manipulator like Corpse Husband, or B, saying nothing like I often do as the imposter and let people deal with this shit on their own, and just weigh in occasionally to you know, do whatever, is that the same thing? Because Hanzo can't do that, right? Hanzo can't tactically choose to just never shoot and win. Um, I... Uh, you said thinking about Bacon Potem from I three think, years ago. I was thinking about where Torb went around hitting people with his hammer. Well, I mean, <laughs> the decision when. of when to release... Still doing something. The decision of when to, to pull the trigger on Hanzo is, like, just simply sprinting at a point and taking every single fight is not the right decision in any FPS. Like, you want to take the optimal fight, you want to engage the optimal time, you want to team fight at the optimal time. Hear that, Apex teammates? Maybe oh, we don't run into great. the coming wall of death. Both and of you just stop wait for them to the come trolls. here. And, and likewise, in Among Us, it's not always the right thing to do to speak. Sometimes somebody's on a tangent that is going to lead to a path where somebody else is going to get killed, and you just want to let them go on that. They don't need any egging on. And egging on sometimes it's suspicious. So it's almost like I, I think it's still the same thing. Like, knowing when to take the fight and knowing when to say the words is a similar instinct and a similar skill check. Oh, when to default. Bravely default. Fun fact. That was an interesting game to look at from, like, a challenge standpoint, is that it was a game where you had to default or retreat. But it's not competitive, so it's off topic. No, I know, but I think that that fits in with like his the decision of whether or not when you charge the point and when you don't when to stay silent. I and mean, I get I guess speak. by that standard, then yes, that would count as. It's weird to think of Among Us as a competitive game for me, but yes. 
Well, I, think, I mean, I play with my coworkers. I think it's competitive in the same way that poker is competitive, and I am I am not super familiar with poker, but from what I understand, it's a similar concept. Where well, a lot a little of, bit depends on what type of a poker. Weird one. I've learned a lot that of there's this, many many sorry. different types of poker. I used to play poker, not like anywhere near professionally, but I used to play seriously two or three times a week. Um, with some friends uh, back in college, and it's a uh, I mean, there's a whole song about it, right? The gambler, like, no one to hold him, no one to fold him. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think by that standard, it does count. I think... Yeah. Let, Sorry, finish your thought, Mazio. No, like, the idea in Among Us of do I do I act or not act here, right, with the kill button or the vent, although I almost never vent, is equivalent to charging a point or not at a given time under given conditions. It's a similar. I definitely. I think the the poker comparison is pretty solid because, yeah. like, your the hand you're dealt in poker is independent of your personal actions or skill, and the hand you're dealt in Among Us is similarly entirely out of your hands. It is you know you're an imposter, you're an innocent, and then your demeanor and how you play that is where the skill comes in. And likewise, poker I think legally is a game of skill. It's not gambling in like a competitive sense it is a game of skill it is also regarded as gambling by the regulators but in like like a non-professional form yeah it's it's gambling but you can be under 21 and play competitive poker yeah i used to know somebody that did that in high school oh wow yep i did not know that Mm -hmm. yeah you can play in tournaments and stuff i'll i mean i'll double check on that right now but i'm remember this distinctly i think another topic we could talk about about going off of Masio's comment about how he doesn't view or didn't view Among Us as a competitive game is there's different types of competition or, no, better, there's different styles of competition that invoked different feelings in a player. So the atmosphere that's in a... Genshin Impact? No, I used to say the competitive aspect that's in a battle royale, like Apex, because I've been playing a lot of Apex lately, because season, season 7 just came out. New map, new character, very fun. But the competitive mindset and feelings that are invoked in a battle royale, like Apex, is very different than the feelings invoked in, say, ARMS, or a Nintendo, like a Nintendo party game, Mario Party which is technically still a competition among players, but it's a quote-unquote friendly competition and not a I'm going to beat your face in or chuck my controller across the room if I lag spike here and miss this shot. Whereas I think, for example, Mazio, whenever we sat, sit down and we sat down and played Scythe, that was still a competition, but it wasn't a... It was a friendly competition. Right. I mean, Scythe is a competitive game, though. Yes, but but when we played it as just friends, the atmosphere that was generated from that was a different atmosphere than at a tournament or at a professional level. So, Among Us doesn't have a professional scene. I don't think so. Correct me if I'm wrong, people of the internet. But So it's made to be more of a friendly, competitive game, which may fall outside of the range of when we're thinking of competitive games, we naturally think of X, Y, and Z. 
I think what's kind of coming to mind at the moment is the fact that if there's no tournament scene and there's no SR or equivalent ranking thereof, that my brain does not process you as a competitive game. But once you are a competitive game, there are aspects of competition that are not related to tournaments or rankings of any kind. Going back to the completionist point from before and the line point from now, right? Like, Corpse Husband's taking the, you know, Among Us competitively by virtue of it being serious. And this actually conveniently weighs back to the buy-in aspect of what we talked in before, where it is a question of maybe competitive just means how serious you're taking this. And how hard you're willing to make that statement. Yeah. Right? Competitive checkers can be a thing if you're really willing to go down that dark, dark, dark hole. So, to fact check myself in the age limit, it apparently varies state to state. So, good thing I didn't say the guy's name. Um, <laughs> the poker. You hear that? Poker. You hear that? So, you're welcome. That's something. Um, but it is legally a game of skill as of a 2012 court ruling where somebody was operating a backroom poker game um, and had a conviction overturned. So huh. I would say there is a legal gray area, but I would I would make the argument that it is probably skill based or at least partially skill based. Do you have anything to input about the <laughs> different? I don't. I was researching. Okay, <laughs> <I> just, <laughs> okay so just, the like, last point the just completely gone. <laughs> oh god. Um, but no, we were talking about there's different levels of competition, and Mazzy brought up a point of how how serious you take it can relate to just how competitive the game is viewed. Mm-hmm. Like, being competitive isn't because there is a competitive mode to a game or tournament scene. It is simply because the game is taken that seriously. And that's kind of like a requisite for those other things existing. It's just that we've gotten good at anticipating, or developers have gotten good at hopefully anticipating when those things will exist. And I think that checks out with how we played Overwatch. Because for a bit, we didn't take Overwatch seriously. And just played quick play. Or even when we played SR, we didn't, like, we didn't take it super seriously. But then when we started to take it seriously, it became much more competitive in my mind. And I think that there is a, there's a component to my brain that says that line that you just described is the difference between if I get better, great. And if not, I'm just here for the lulls. Right. And I care about getting better. And I think that that is one of the major things, like, um, I play a lot of miniatures games that have attached tournament scenes that are quote-unquote competitive games. I do not play them competitively and do not care. I play lots of video games that have competitive sequences scenes that I may or may not involve myself in depending upon how good your rewards are without actually caring if I ever get any better at what we are doing. I know we keep saying we're not going to talk about magic. But it's also similar to how if just you and I, in individual X and Y, play a game of Commander at your house. It's still, by I guess definition, a competition among us. But we, since we're not treating it as seriously as they do at tournaments, we ourselves may are just view it as a fun thing to do with friends. I'm actually going to steal this example and go in a different direction, if that's okay. 
Yes. Um, Are you going to bring up? <laughs> okay, no, go ahead. No, no, ask the question. <laughs> I thought you were going to bring up the time where, like, I miss I misstated a role on Jared and won, and Jared lost. And, like, if that was a tournament, Jared would have raised his hand into the air and screamed for a judge, or yelled for a judge, not screamed, but, like, very loud as he has demonstrated to us before. Uh, I'm with you. Uh, and he would have called a judge over and there would have been a big debate about it because it's a very serious moment. Whereas since we were all playing... <laughs> there would have been a debate. The judge would have I know. Just said, the judge no, would have been, you're no, wrong. you're wrong. But he, would have, but he would have taken the effort to call a judge because it, was very, it would have been very serious in that matter. But since we were just playing at home, he was like, I think that's wrong, but whatever, I could be wrong. But... No, I mean, I think that's the difference between a guy that plays modern Grand Prix and sitting at a folding table in my living room. Yeah. Right? Like, he's not gonna, he will not take it that seriously because he does not care. And quite frankly, you and I are not valid opponents for someone of his skill cap. Very true. Like, <laughs> like oh, like, if I beat Jared in a game of Magic, it's a big deal for me because, like, not like, ah ha ha, I beat you, but it's like, wow, like, I, I, uh, Oh, I, did I good. guess I got lucky, but um. Ah, <laughs> uh, damn! If Jared uh, ever listens, because I do want to do a ma- I do want to do magic episodes, but I want Jared here for them because we talk about him constantly on this podcast. I well, so the um, thing is, if Jared ever listens to this, I feel like we'll never. He'll. I don't think he'll let me or you live it down that we both just one talked about the time where I misstated a role, and two both admitted that he is significantly better. In all aspects of the game to us. And I feel like he if he listens to this, it's just gonna be he's gonna be in Discord the next week. Being like, yeah, fuckers. The only thing I can beat Jared in, in Magic is occasionally standard if I am not busy enough IRL to be practiced in standard. And cause he doesn't really play standard, because he's he plays modern. But um I wanna take this away from that and go with um uh, Big box games, Twilight Imperium, in particular. Um, it's a non-competitive game. There are competitive, I guess, events for it at certain cons and things, but it's not a competitive game. It is a very big board game, right? But because of the weight of the game, it enforces that seriousness that we're talking about, right? Like, yeah, when you come to my house to play Twilight Imperium, or I'm hosting Twilight Imperium somewhere, the first thing that happens is you get an email. With like an hour's worth of YouTube videos in it. And I tell you, hey, listen, watch this one once, watch this one three times, come prepared. And if you don't, it shows and you get clubbed like a baby seal because the game is like six to ten hours long. Usually it cruises like six to seven for us. And because of that time investment and the thinking and of the exhaustion, right? You're talking about a game that starts with an early lunch and ends with a late dinner, right? That's the same thing as going to a tournament on, like, a Saturday or a Sunday and playing three quick rounds, right? Like, we started at 10, we ended at 6, we started eating hoagies, and we ended at the buffet. I want to go back to the buffet. I want to go to any buffet (laughs) at the moment. So, Um, but Go ahead. Um, do you think, and it's kind of a more, maybe a little philosophical question, do you think a competition requires a reasonable chance for both sides to win and a semi-reasonable skill gap? Because, like... I I think it requires both sides to take it seriously. Well, okay. So if, 
I put a bronze player, a bronze team versus a challenger team in League of Legends in a competitive format, and they both take it as seriously as they possibly can. Is that really a competition? Because there is, re- uh, not objectively, but pretty much 0% chance that the bronze team is going to win. Likewise, if I put a professional poker player around a table of entire, complete novices, and they both try their best, is that, is it gambling? I think seriousness is just one piece to the puzzle that is what makes some games do well competitively and what makes other games not have a competitive scene. Kind of. So like, a little bit. In Mario Party, nobody takes that game seriously. We'll, we'll jokingly take it seriously. But nobody really takes it seriously enough to elevate it to a competitive level. And then also the game wasn't built to be at that level. Is Egger competitive? I don't know what that is. Yeah, I don't know what that is either. How do you pronounce it, Jake? Wait, say it again? Egger, A-G-A-R? Oh, Agar. Um, oh, Gar. Because there's winners and losers in it. They have a Battle Royale format. I would say that there's enough there's enough skill that goes into the game that it is partially competitive. But I the part that's not competitive is the fact that you cannot see the entirety of the map. So the information that you have on the screen is not complete. Like, if there is a gigantic person next to you that has boxed you in, you might not know until it's too late. There is no optimal path that you could have taken to outplay that person. And at that point, it's not a competition. It's just you waiting to lose. Right, but is anybody taking it that seriously? Maybe not. Or is it just a fun little mobile game? I don't know that it matters. Like, even if, let's say that they were taking it that seriously, the same situation could still occur. Because, well, also because the time at which you enter the game is not uh, the same. Somebody can already be big and have you completely cornered before you even spawn. Um, Yeah, I mean, the number of times I've spawned and died in that game is pretty alarming. But if you were to take a bunch of Agar players and drop them at relatively equal points in the map at the same time, like you said, I, I, you said there was a battle royale mode that wasn't, it wasn't like that when I played, but that was also in high school, so it was a long time ago. But that, I think, could probably be competitive. Because you all are starting from an equal point, and if you're all playing with the intent to win, there is a legitimate, fair competition. I think another thing to consider is how much RNG element is in the game. I think too much RNG limits its competitive capacity. For reference... Maybe, but lots of games are... Lots of games are super random and people play them competitively. Uh, for for reference, the game we're talking about is Agar.io, uh, or Agario, depending on how you pronounce it. It's uh, like a browser-based game. Where you is that the snake one? And you other people. It's not. No, that's Slytherin. It's, yeah, it's a different one. But you go um, around, you eat things, this, you get bigger. Yeah, this, I think, predates a snake one by a little gotcha. bit. Um, it's also an app on um, my iPad now. Yeah, there's app versions of it, but if anyone wants to check out what we're talking about, that's what it is. I'm still hung up on the part, so like in the poker case, right, where they've ruled it not gambling. If you have 
an entirely novice group of people playing poker who don't understand the manipulation, the posturing, and the pieces of skill that happen after the hand is dealt. And they're just playing off the dealt hand. So essentially, they're randomly playing. Like, nobody's folding, or they don't know how to bluff. And we just get to the end, like if I played poker. We put our cards down, whoever had the best hand won that round of betting. Is that gambling? Is it just the same as basically pulling the lever on a slot? I mean, I think it would have to be gambling under those conditions because you're not actually acting upon the information. What if you were playing for like $100,000 a hand? Would that make the weight serious enough to call it competitive? I don't... <sighs> I mean, this is all hypothetical, right? Like, we're just... That, it's a good question. We're spitballing conditions to discover where the lines are. But then I think that's just gambling. And I think that's a whole different realm of competition, separate from what we initially started talking about with tabletop and video games. Kind because, of. like, if I, think, if I think about it, there's, um, dang it, there's that game at the table where you roll dice. Crap. Craps. Sure. But it's all in the dice roll. But you you bet for money, right? But it's all random. I'm I less familiar know. with how that works. You'll have to take this one. Next. I know how craps works, at least a little bit. Is that true? Yes, no? I, I think so. Just on the dice roll? Yeah, so the way craps work is you put down a bet, and then the shooter rolls the dice. And sevens or elevens pay out, and I forget what number it is, is craps and the bets are lost, and then... If it's like any other number, like two, six, or four, six, eight, um, ten, eight, or four, six, eight, nine, ten, um, the game turns on. I'm obviously not an expert craft player internet. I apologize. Uh, the game continues to roll until the shooter rolls a seven or the number that they roll. So if you roll a six, the game turns on. The game ends when you roll another six. In between, there are lots of smaller bets that can pay out on different rolls. Actually super fun to play, not terribly expensive if you're looking for something to do at a casino. But that's pure RNG. And it's gambling. Yeah. I, I mean, it roulette's the same way. Right, yeah. I don't put those games in the same category of, say, Overwatch. Because it's pure RNG and you're doing it for the thrill of chance. The thrill of the chance, I guess. There's a term for it. There's a term for it. There's like a high whenever you beat the odds, right? Yeah. Gambling but, edition. Sure, yeah. But it's like you going against fate and not you going against another player or another so obstacle. It's like this imaginary obstacle you've created called fate. And let me dice. put it to you this way. If you queue up in League of Legends, and you're acceptable for your rank, or maybe you're a little undervalued in your rank, so let's call your win rate about 51%, or, you know, even 60 mm -hmm. Um, and you're playing in solo queue, and you get nine other random people in the game, is that, is it gambling if you have the better team? Because oftentimes you can't solo carry a League of Legends game, or, I mean, sometimes you can, but it's not a consistent play that you're gonna 
you know, be able to by yourself insure a win a reasonable amount of the times over 60 to 70% if you're somewhat appropriately ranked. If you're, you know, a challenger player that's smurfing in silver, then yeah, that's, that's a different situation because the skill cap really is extremely high. Are you gambling when you queue up? And is your, is your buy-in your LP? Or for Overwatch, or SR, I believe it's SR. Yeah. yeah. Your ELO points. I think it's not as high of a gamble. Because I think, yes, you get ra- yes you get random players, but the game itself is still determined on the actions of those players, which aren't fate. Whereas in Kreps or Roulette, it's just however gravity decides to manipulate these things. Relative to you playing a game by yourself, though, you have no influence over those actions. And well, they might as well be random. In Overwatch, you can communicate with your team. You can And that too. then can impact and change the outcome. You still had an influence on the outcome of the game if you do that. There are tools for you to influence the outcome. Whereas in the gambling games, there isn't. Unless you're cheating. Don't cheat, guys. Cheat. Always. <laughs> Please. You can get away with it. And I think that's the difference for me. Is is there a chance for the player to affect the outcome or not? Because if I think back to Mario Party, part of the reasons why Mario Party doesn't really have a competitive scene is because it's all chance. Yeah. There's nothing there's some mini games that give you money. So yeah, you could get one bonus star. Or yeah, you could I guess buy a star, but like where you are in the board and the obstacles you face and the setbacks are all just random. No matter how good a person is at a mini game, if the board decides to screw them over, they can't win. No amount of player interaction can alter that. So, relative to Mario Party, right? There are some skill-based mini games in Mario Party, correct? There's a couple where yeah. you're battling. So, let's say you are a very good Mario Party player, and you will always win those skill-based games. But the rest of it is entirely random. So your true win rate is somewhere, you know, uh, how many people play in a Mario Party game? Well, it's eight, but usually four. Let's say you're 1v1. Let's say you're 1v1. Or, okay, so four. So you should win a quarter of the time. But you're a little better, so you're winning, you know, 28% of the time. Or 30% of the time. Is that much different than you having a 50-something percent win rate in League because you're making the decisions that you can occasionally to win when the game is actually in your hands? When, you know, mid lane is the lane that's going to determine this game and top doesn't go 0-8 and, and feed and basically create an unkillable Trindamir. And I'm having flashbacks to yesterday when I was playing League because it's the end of the season and it's not going well. But you get the point. Well, I think the difference is, is that as someone who's fairly good, at Mario Party minigames. I typically win like 90% of the minigames I play with friends. But I win the overall game <laughs> maybe 10 to 25% of the time. So like my skill at the minigames has little to no impact on the rest of the RNG of the game. Where did I roll a 1? Did I roll a 10? If I rolled a 10, did I land on a space that then rocketed me back to the beginning? Meh. I think there may be elements of skill in Mario Party, but it's dwarfed so heavily by the RNG that it makes it 
hard for it to ever have a competitive scene, which is probably why it doesn't. As far as I mean, I'm does aware, anybody take it that seriously? I mean, I've watched some of my friends <laughs> nearly crush a controller because an AI stole their star from them. Oh. <laughs> I'm sure you could find a serious group of Mario Party players or a large enough data set of people that are legitimately trying to win. So, but the thing is, is last time I checked, Mario Party doesn't have a competitive scene, which was fairly recently because I had this conversation with someone else. But I'm googling now. So, in that case, is there is there a magic proportion, a magic percentage of your skill influencing your win rate of a game that it turns from? RNG to competitive because it's not fifty one percent or it's not yeah. you know a couple percent over if if we're taking Mario Party as a non competitive game entirely because you could influence your win rate ever so slightly by winning the mini games every time in a large enough group a large enough set of games like what where is the cutoff at which it becomes truly competitive I think this is something that we should talk about. Or use as a segue for possibly a future magic podcast that we've talked yeah. about doing multiple times. Because if we break it down, magic has a lot of RNG, but it's still very, it has a very prominent competitive scene. And we need to oh. figure out what player skills or like what, what about it in the game dictates it to be more competitive even though it has the RNG of draw, shuffle, what have you. Well, I pose the question. Do we have comments? Can we can it, can people comment on this? Is that a thing? Uh I think but it's across multiple formats. So like Mail me a letter. <laughs> I am at one pigeon, Apple but pigeon drive. only please. <laughs> yeah. Carrier pigeon only. I am at sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue. Send me a letter and I'm tell me if that. you <laughs> So wait, it's, wait, it's I, the, I have a closing comment on the Mario thing. Wait, I have a closing comment on the Mario thing. Okay, Screen Rant, uh, October sixth of this year, actually released an article saying Mario Party: What happened to Nintendo's competitive series? Talking about Mario Party's cutthroat roots and how Mario Party is like uh, disappointing to see what it's become. Is there only one article on that? I mean, I, I'm researching it as we go. So okay, well, like, we'll, so we'll we'll, we'll, t- we'll get back to this and we'll do more research. I I do think that we should say I, I think that that line could be more easily defined in Magic: The Gathering because it is a stable system, right? Like there's multiple formats and everything, but ultimately a lot of the game factors are the same. In the same way that I I think that there's a further discussion in this about the popularity and eventual death of certain competitive games and what that looks like, or games that wish to be competitive that never actually got all the way there. So maybe that could be the next podcast. Or 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. No, in all seriousness, though, I think, like, 
the death of a competitive game warrants its own podcast and looking at things like when, when a game stops being taken seriously, seriously enough to actually be a competitive game. Yeah. Well, because games live and die on their communities. How devoted and serious they are to it. Competitive or not. Right. Right. Um, but I think for this podcast, uh, I think we're good. Right? We're 90 minutes in, so hopefully there's so hopefully 45 good. good ones. <laughs> um, thanks for joining us for this episode, Ducklings. Uh, it seems like we actually still have more to talk about. So I think next podcast we do will be the death of competitive games. Why they die. Where they go when they die. Etc. <laughs> Dog food factories, mostly. <laughs> to the farm. To the, to the <laughs> farm. To the farm. <laughs> To All my, right. to my League of Legends game. <laughs> to Jake's League of <laughs> Where Legends Where competition game. goes to die. die. Solo queue. <laughs> <laughs>